This is the voice of Carnage, and you are listening to Carnage Cast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Carnage Cast. I'm Tyler, and with me tonight is Neil Carr, owner of Geek Industrial Complex, a uh, new entity on the role playing hobby scene. Hi, Neil. How are you? Hi. Thanks to be here. It's nice to have you on the show. Uh, so. Geek Industrial Complex uh, is in the middle of kickstarting something, right? Aren't they? Yep, yep. And it's only been out for a few days now, and it's already reached its funding goal. And so that's just been very exciting to see that happen. Mm-hmm. And what's the name of the uh, of what you're kickstarting? It is Companions of the Firmament, and it is a Pathfinder compatible uh, supplement that focuses on uh, flying characters, um, flying adventures, basically trying to hit as many different elements about supporting kind of a robust experience of flying in a Pathfinder-style uh, role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And Pathfinder is the game that grew out of the Dungeons & Dragons tradition, so you're building into that ability to just slot in new material through the open gaming license. Uh, yeah, so everything is built off of the the open game license, just as the Pathfinder role-playing game is also. And so um, it's has a nice uh, modular quality to it so that someone like myself can create a, a third-party press um, product and be able to just offer that up so that people can just plug that into their system however much they want or however little they want. So is, is that going to be one of the, the selling points of uh, Companions of the Ferment? People can sort of draw what they need out of it? It's not a, you have to, you must use this whole book and using anything requires the whole book? Yeah, exactly. It is designed very much in mind with uh, modular play. I think one of the things about the, the, the modern scene in role-playing games is that people have become more aware that there's lots of different styles to how you play a role-playing game, and there's kind of aesthetic goals that people can actually aim for when they're playing, whereas a decade or two before, people just kind of did it, but they didn't really have a lot of... um, kind of conceptual structures around that to be able to kind of point out that's the kind of experience that I want versus that kind. And so in light of that, I'm trying to work on rules that would prevent or present several different options to players and game masters depending on what kind of experience they might have. Companions of the Firmament is a is a supplement as a Pathfinder supplement for bringing more detail to flying and flying characters. What are some of the particular things people are going to be able to find in the book? Aside from kind of elaborations on these kind of corner case elements of the rules um, or variations on what those what the rules give, um, a, another big part of it is really focusing on flying mounts. So that one of the things with uh, flying in a fantasy game is that, you know, ultimately, if everything's magical, you can just kind of 
you can just kind of say, well, anything can fly for magical reasons. And I found that that's really a broad area, and it, it's, it's less interesting to have such a huge open canvas. And so I'm really trying to focus more on um, flying mounts, because it's something that everybody can kind of wrap their minds around both the benefits and the limitations because it's just kind of conceptually you just it's like getting on a horse and then you're able to kind of use this kind of fantastical movement with this mount so um, so one of the things I want to really focus on is detailing a lot of traditional mounts that you've always been able to get in Pathfinder and before that Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. um, and then expand on that and detail a lot of creatures that you just traditionally didn't normally see people riding around but people might end up finding really interesting. Um, an example would be the Hainu which is a mythological, a Japanese mythological creature, which is basically a winged dog. Yes, that caught my attention on the Kickstarter page. People who are listening along should go and check it out. It's a great illustration. That it's, a, it's a fantastic piece of art. Um, Ashley did this wonderful job with it. And uh, I, you know, it, it's, uh, I was really relieved to find that there actually was a mythological creature of a winged dog because I kind of really originally thought of, well, you know, everyone loves dogs. Why not put some wings on it? <laughs> There's just something just kind of basically appealing to that. And But at the same time, I can see a lot of gamers rolling their eyes and being like, oh, oh you're just going to put wings on anything, aren't you? And, uh, and actually, I'll, I'll probably touch on that and how you can put wings on anything just to kind of open up, you know, whatever kind of wild combination you want. But dogs just are very appealing, and it's to have a companion dog that can actually fly, and if you're small, you can hop onto it. Um, it, it all just kind of makes sense. So that would be, like, one example. And I know that there's cat lovers all over the place. So yes, there's also going to be a winged cat. Uh, it's going to be kind of a, a lynx-like cat, so it's a bigger cat. Um, and so there's going to be some of that um, fluidity in terms of what kind of fantastical mount do you want to have, and I'll give some guidelines on how that can come about. But I'm also going into more detail on things like giant eagles and griffins and pegasus, and I'm going to be doing it in a way that's similar to the Worm Rider, which right now on the Kickstarter you can uh, download a copy of it and kind of see uh, what that's like. And the whole idea there is to break down these fantastical creatures on a level-by-level -level basis mm -hmm. so that you can use them at any level and it's going to be kind of lining up with the kind of expected power level that you can expect that a party would have at that time. So um, someone could drop a level one worm rider into a starting campaign? 
with with the Worm Rider, it's a Cavalier archetype. So that means that you would be using the Cavalier class that's found out of the Advanced Player's Guide in uh, the Pathfinder role-playing game. And this archetype basically modifies that base class so that you can then have this little dragon as your as your companion. And if you're small, then you could actually get on it and ride it around. Um, otherwise, you have to kind of wait for it to grow up a bit as you gain levels. I see. So and, halflings are okay from the get-go. Yeah. So And, and that's something that... Um, that's something that I, I definitely would want to stress is that what I'm really trying to do with a lot of the power balance is kind of see where um, Paizo in their designing of Pathfinder have already agreed are things that are possible. And so you can already, with the core game of Pathfinder, without any supplements, already have a flying mount right from level one. An example would be being a halfling druid who gets an animal companion that's like a, a dire bat. And so right at level one, you can hop on that bat and you can start flying around. So there's already precedent there to be able to do these things. And so rather than being limited to already what's been spelled out in the rules, Let's flesh it out and kind of give a huge range of opportunities and, and possibilities for players to, to be able to play around with. Yeah, sort of normalize it and making it, instead of making it the weird corner case where somebody found the creature that can carry their special variant race. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of uh, mount options. Is there going to be uh, much customization available there, or is it a lot of prefigured stuff? Looking at the, the Worm Rider. I'll point to that just because people will be able to quickly be able to download it and, and reference it, is that it's designed to have customization built into it. Mm -hmm. And so um, particularly for the worm, uh, it's it's supposed to be, the worm is, is supposed to be a domesticated dragon. Uh, it's kind of a, just like a horse or a dog has been domesticated, the concept with the worm is that it's been, uh, a dragon uh, breed that's been domesticated. So they're just like, sure, I don't mind having you on my back and um, I'll kind of grow up with you and be able to be your loyal companion through all of your adventures. One of the things is that dragons in the game um, are really, really powerful. They get packed in with all sorts of features that actually most other monsters in the system don't get such a huge amount of, of features packed into that one creature. And so it isn't really possible to just have a pure dragon and keep things balanced because of they're so kind of preloaded with things. Mm -hmm. But it does, what it does do is it kind of opens up a nice range of options. So the whole like, kind of concept is that as your dragon is getting older, more of their dragon features become expressed. But just like a dog, only certain things get expressed. And so you can kind of customize. Do you want your dragon to 
to breathe fire or do you want it to be this kind of magical dragon that has this, these kind of spell-like abilities and can kind of cast spells or do you want it to just be this big, hulking, really strong creature? And so there's trade-offs in all of them, but it gives you a chance to kind of really customize your own particular mount. Is that going something that's going to extend to other mounts or other character types? Yeah, uh, with... With uh, things like the giant eagle, the griffin, and the pegasus, there's going to be um, there's going to be options there where you're going to have a range of, of things that you can kind of pick from, to kind of stress certain features. Um, one of the things that is a little bit different for them is just that, unlike dragons, which come in all sorts of different forms and colors and have all these magical extra abilities. Um, these ones will be a little bit more subtle and kind of not not having as a robust of a, a kind of suite of options, and that and that's just kind of the nature of how those kind of creature concepts are. Um, but you know, it, it's enough to kind of personalize your mount to kind of. Uh, stand out from the crowd. Now, it's not just mounts that are going to be included. I understand there's at least one character class, archetype? There's at least one. Uh, I've been debating uh, how many I ultimately wanted to include, and I think most of that is going to come down to how comfortable I am with the the, the degree of playtesting. But the, one, the other one that I'm definitely going to have in there is the Air Pilgrim. And this is a monk archetype so you take the monk and then you apply this archetype to it and then it modifies the base class uh in and in this case it kind of modifies it kind of rather extensively so this is something that uh it, it's it's all about taking the monk and focusing on the element of air the monk basically can naturally fly by manipulating the air around them. And, you know, this is <laughs> rather inspired by the Avatar The Last Airbender, um, although it, it doesn't fit, it isn't a, a complete kind of uh, lineup as to how The Last Airbender works, just because the Pathfinder system's kind of cosmology doesn't completely line up, and so it's it's giving a sense of that, but it's kind of going off in its own direction. Yeah, you did some sanding and some shimmy. Yeah, yeah. That one is, I guess, a little bit more challenging in the design um, because of the fact that one kind of ongoing debate, if you were to go on to the Internet forums that goes back to D&D, 3.0 and 3.5 and then into Pathfinder is that the monk class um, has this ongoing argument about how effective it is. If you kind of tease out what the monk is capable of, there are some issues there in terms of how well it can compete with some of the other more magical classes. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of design space because of that discrepancy in power that is available, and you can actually kind of take the monk and kind of push the design fairly far and kind of put a lot more interesting features into it without 
making the class kind of fall apart and kind of start um, causing problems in the campaign. Uh, so that's that's something that I've found really interesting is being able to kind of loosen up the monk and be able to kind of have it do things that you wouldn't really expect it to be able to do. Yeah, uh, one or two uh, perks of of the the air pilgrim that you want to share. If, if you go look in the spell section of Pathfinder role playing game, there's the gust of wind, the fairly low level spell that you can kind of cast. One of the things that I've been trying to work with is having that just be an at-will power. It's just something that you can just do all the day, all, all time, all the time. All, you can just keep on gusting of wind. You can always be manipulating the air in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then seeing how you can kind of build other effects around that. And one thing that the game I've found is missing a bit is more of these uh, kind of supernatural abilities that just kind of always work and don't necessarily have to have uh, resources that have to be spent all the time to kind of track them. Mm -hmm. And the gust of wind, I think, is an interesting one because it's it's not it's not overpowering, but what it can be done what can be done with it is very you can kind of do really interesting tactical and strategic things with it because of the fact that you can do it at will. Uh, so that's, that, that's, that's an interesting kind of twist that I hope people have a lot of fun with. Mm -hmm. You are coming at the design of these, these mounts and characters with a sense of the, the, the game balance and the tactical possibilities and how to make it fun without being excessively fun for one person at the cost of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what uh, what sort what what sort of play testing process are you putting this material through? Pretty traditional, rounding up friends who are willing to say yes and <laughs> bear with you and uh, go ahead and play through things. Um, and afterwards, after the session, I have my notes out and I start asking lots of pointed questions, and I'm really trying to tease out um, specific elements in that playtest that I was kind of like looking for. So it isn't just kind of like, well, let's see how it goes, but it's like, how did this particular element work, and how did you feel about this thing happening? That kind of helps. Having a little bit more focus in the playtesting I found over time it really helps because you know you're you're doing this massive amount of front loaded kind of design and if you don't come in with it with specific questions that you want to have answered um, it while you can get some fantastic input that's just um, beyond what you were asking for you could also end up spending all that time and kind of missing the point of what you were, you know, aiming for. Mm. So that that's that's the general process that I've been doing. Mm. When it comes to those pointed questions, do you find that there's a, a line to tread between your friends saying you want to wanting to say you run a good game and then being frank about the rules, or do you feel like you have a set who can be frank and still be friendly? I think I get nice frank questions. Um, 
I, I, I think that I, I've got some great friends that I think also are in their own positions where they're doing play testing for their own types of games. And uh, so they, they understand where I'm coming from and what they need. And so they're able to kind of to give some, you know, sharp, constructive criticism. And I, I can take it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, <laughs> well, what's more, <laughs> well, what, what, what ends up being a, a bit more uh, throwing me off is every once in a while a friend will say, well, all this stuff that you've done, Neil, is great, but you really should just go and do this. <laughs> and uh, They want you to write a different book? Yeah, yeah. it's just like, well, the, all this flying stuff is great, but you <laughs> should go do something about castles or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> and it just... Uh, <laughs> I was like, well, I, I think I need a little bit more focused input <laughs> yeah. right now. So uh... Maybe that could be book number two. <laughs> for, the, for the GM who's listening to this and thinking, oh, crap, flying, I don't need that in my game, is there going to be uh, any material to help sort of talk about or show how that this can work in a conventional Pathfinder campaign? Yes, that is something that I, I think is really important because... Flying, I think, for a lot of a big reason why flying can often not get a lot of focus in a campaign is because people just end up being either intimidated by it or they look at the the rules and just feel like it would just be a big bother. Uh, in terms of intimidation, I think what can often happen is that since the game really is so focused on standing on the ground, going underground, kind of doing a dungeon crawl, that a lot of the kind of intuitive challenges and obstacles that a game master can be kind of creating for their players can end up being solved by flying rather easily. I I think that sometimes what people just really need is just to be able to kind of be shown how to just think of their adventures in a slightly different way. You know, like if if there's a castle and the players need to get into the castle to save the prince, then they need to, the game master shouldn't be thinking in terms of the walls being one of the challenges if you have a whole bunch of flying characters. Instead, you would have to think about where you put the actual challenges deeper into the castle where they have to actually get inside and make the dynamic of them going over the walls something that is going to be um, interesting in in itself, but not necessarily like a real challenge that they have to problem solve. That would be kind of like the intimidation factor is kind of um, dealing with that. And then the other end is kind of the, the technical aspect. Um, you know, you're you're flying, and if you're playing where you're just trying to kind of simulate reality, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's three dimensions here that are really being stressed. You've got to kind of keep track of all these things. Oh, it's just so much of a bother. Mm-hmm. And and I, I agree that that can it can really be a bother. And some of the ways, some of the approaches that have been used tend to be so technical that it just is, it's just too encumbering. What 
I'm setting up here is kind of a discussion, and this kind of goes back to the dialing, is having a discussion of, well, what is it that you want out of flying in the campaign, or, or what do you want out of a, a flying encounter, and actually offering up different ways of conducting a flying encounter in the game. And that doesn't have to be necessarily the way that you use it all the time in the campaign. In fact, you could just kind of decide that this encounter needs a very simple type of um, framework, and this one needs a lot more detail. And so you can kind of mix and match for whatever is actually really needed. And some of the ways to simplify things is actually to kind of change the orientation of the grid. Normally when you're playing, you're assuming a top-down a top position. Sometimes you can actually have a flying encounter where all you really need is a um, sideways position. So imagine the grid being more of like a side-scroller in you know, a video game. Mm -hmm. and, and that you don't really need a lot of depth in terms of where people are positioned. All you need is just kind of how far away are they from the ground and uh, where are they in relation to each other in the sky just on a, a flat plane. And that actually can kind of deliver everything that you need that encounter to deliver. Um, and so it can actually kind of speed up play tremendously because you don't have to sit there trying to figure out the X, Y, Z grid coordinates. Right, and building um, a, a tower of D6s to hold a figure. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of being that, that whole issue of, well, do we really need to use a whole bunch of flying in our campaign? It's kind of being tackled at from several different angles, you mm -hmm. know, from a kind of adventure design angle, but then also from uh, multiple kind of layers of which which kind of tactical combat do you want, or do you even want tactical combat? Do you want something that's more abstract and has a more narrative quality to it? Mm -hmm. One of the things that's been getting played around is just kind of like a kind of an aerial advantage. It's just like, um, are, are you the person who's um, in the advantageous position in the air or not? So you, you don't have to have a grid all you're really doing is just kind of measuring um, where everybody is in relation to, you know, how threatened they are or how threatening they are to the other side. Okay. And that, that can kind of really speed things up and give a sense of, you know, there's this kind of dimension that everybody's in, but you don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of where everything is kind of, you know, exactly in position with everybody else. Mm -hmm. So following on from addressing that concern of GMs about how flying is going to fit into their campaign, how is what Companions of the Firmament offers going to slot into the Pathfinder system? Well, one thing that I was really conscious of is that, um, you know, the, the Pathfinder role-playing game is built off of uh, characters making or players making all sorts of choices about their characters and how all these little mechanical bits fit together and perform in the game. And, uh, you know, the big one is feats. And so one thing that I was 
I've been really trying to avoid is just creating a whole slew of new feats that just have to be added to the list. And instead, I've been trying to make sure that you can kind of use the existing feats in the system and other class abilities and use them in the air just as you would use them on the ground. So, you know, an example would be things like tripping maneuvers and grappling maneuvers. And rather than creating a whole new bunch of feats that are specialized with kind of performing those maneuvers in the sky, creating a whole bunch of new rules in, in and of themselves, instead just use the existing system and figure out how, what does a trip look like in the air? Mm-hmm. And if, if you're good at it, then what, what will that mean if a winged creature is tripped? What, what does it mean when you fall prone? Yeah. And it, just really, it really means that you fall X amount of distance in like half a round. It's just you, you do that. Or what, what ends up happening when two creatures that are grappling in the sky, you know, do they fall? Are they, are they partially falling? Or what if one of them isn't a flyer and the other one is? You know, there's all sorts of kind of corner cases there that kind of goes back to the elaboration. It's just like um, there's all these things but that can kind of come up and it's anticipating them and making sure that the existing system ends up getting used rather than, say, creating new aerial combat maneuvers, right. which just adds more rules and lookups and all that stuff. And and puts uh, more stress on characters in all, what is already a, a feat-starved environment. Because yeah, there's yeah. never enough feats. So yeah. you're saying instead of like an aerial trip, there will just be, this is how you use trip in the air. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to go and get improved trip, the feat improved trip, then you get it, and great. Now you're you're going to be really good at, you know, knocking people at least partially out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of trade-off there because I know some people will be like, well, I really want to have that be a specialization. They shouldn't be able to, like, really trip on the ground well and in the air. But honestly, I think it's just paying attention to the game functioning as an enjoyable game is an important part of the design process. And so endlessly specializing is something that I'm trying to avoid. Yes. And then you, you then you wind up with that situation you mentioned earlier where the flying player wants to solve everything by flying. Yes, yes. The biggest question is what happens when the player creates a specialized archer character and then their answer to every combat is I go up 500 feet and then I just do full attacks until the thing is dead. Mm-hmm. And so that is something that I definitely want to address in terms of like, well, for the game master, you don't want that to be happening all the time. It should be something that a character can do and they should have the enjoyment of being able to kind of pull that off. But as the game master, you should be creating the kind of situations where that isn't going to be something which can just easily just happen automatically or or is even the point of what the conflict is about. Not every encounter is going to be in a 10-foot room, but there should be a, a, a line to tread between this never works and this always works. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's just a lot of it's just kind of expanding what people can consider doing with a flying campaign, mm-hmm. rather than kind of assuming that the adventures are always happening out on this open plain and <laughs> clear skies and the the infinite gray plain against which on which the PCs meet everything in the monster manual from Abeleth to something that ends in Z. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the book, Companions of the Firmament. And uh, as this is your your first published project, you opted to, to uh, kickstart the funding of it, right? Yep, yep. So this is the, the, the grand the grand opening endeavor of, of, of Geek Industrial Complex. Yes, which, which was around for, uh, for a while beforehand. You were, uh, I know you were sharing a lot of the, the articles you'd written for the local Pathfinder Society or, you know, written to share with them, and then they went out to the wider world. You published a study of Kickstarter campaigns related to gaming, and I think role-playing in particular? Yeah, yeah. So I'd always kind of had this idea of doing something where I would end up publishing something, and so eventually I decided that it was time to start kind of building that up. And so I'd already written um, several articles and created several PDFs for um, my fellow members of the local Pathfinder Society um, that were all kind of there to kind of help um, both new and old players with um, kind of strategy guides and other um, PDFs that can kind of print out so that they can kind of have features that are already existing in the Pathfinder Society, but which people might not necessarily use because they could be kind of overwhelmed by the number of options or the fact that everything has to be written out ahead of time. And so I went ahead and just kind of organized a lot of information that gives interesting features and just kind of packaged them so that People could just easily just print something out. They have it in front of them, and they can just kind of run with it in the game. And it was specifically stuff that adds not necessarily more direct power to a character, um, like in terms of just kind of bumping up um, bonuses, but rather giving things to players that kind of give lateral options. So that if you have a whole bunch of small little bits of gear on you, you could kind of have like almost a, a Batman utility belt and it actually isn't expensive to do in the game. And so it kind of helps empower everybody to have lots of interesting solutions to problems rather than just kind of spamming some super powerful attack. Right. Uh, and so after all that, I, I kind of accumulated enough of this material and I was like, well, I guess I really need to put this in one location so that I can kind of reference it and kind of link to it because I'm always on gaming internet forums as is. And so it's just a lot easier to just kind of say, oh, yeah, I talked about that before. Here was the article I wrote or here's the PDF that kind of addressed that. Um, So that was kind of the origination of Geek Industrial Complex. And I knew that also building up that content would demonstrate to people that I'm eager to kind of share with the hobby and and kind of create interesting things that other people might like to have. 
Mm-hmm. So you began with that, and then you uh, you did your Kickstarter study a couple months ago. Yeah, and so eventually it was time to really decide to start working on my own Kickstarter. So I sent out a big proposal to to you, Tyler, and uh, several other people. Yes, and I got true. a lot of great feedback on that, um, which was telling me that I was kind of I'd probably end up not having a successful Kickstarter because the scope of what I was trying to do was just too big and asking for too much money. Being in the education field where the trend right now is is data-driven um, types of strategies and doing a better job with education, I thought, well, I guess I just need to do a data-driven strategy to Kickstarter. And so... I started going around looking at all the articles that already exist on there about how to do a good Kickstarter, um, but it was all just very general, and they were giving kind of averages and statistics about how Kickstarters perform, but it's across like all Kickstarters, regardless of what project it is, whether it's dancing or technology or anything. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, the, the role-playing game market is actually a really small sliver of this, a tiny, tiny sliver of this. And I think that how role-playing game products probably perform quite differently from even something like a computer game. Yes. It was time to just start collecting data and finding out what happens. And so I went through and collected data on 150 uh, Kickstarter or, or crowdfunding projects. It wasn't just Kickstarter. It was Indiegogo and a few other sites. And uh, I got 150 different projects that spanned around 12 to 13 months over the last year and then just started processing all that information in spreadsheets and uh, Probably about halfway through it, it suddenly dawned on me that someone else might actually find this useful other than just me. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I guess I should like put out some reports. So then I started creating reports on these things, and then I put them on Geek Industrial Complex. And uh, the reaction was just uh, fantastic. I mean, I, I, I just... It, it, it seems obvious now that everyone would want this information, but at the time I just was like, oh, I guess people would find this interesting. And, sure. um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, people just love that. And, uh, so, so I put out three sections of uh, three parts of the report and then I finally put out the data. And so all that's up there. And so if you want to put on a Kickstarter, I encourage you to go, and read the report because it has a lot of good information on what, uh, from what I found, what the data says works well and what doesn't work well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can kind of keep to those two, keep, keep what works well versus what does not work well, then I think you have a much better chance of having a successful Kickstarter. Um, I ended up designing my Kickstarter basically off of that information. And, uh, yeah, after about 60 hours, I had already reached my funding goal. Yep. Um, 
so it it it, it proved <laughs> it proved what the data was telling me um, in terms of making sure that the Kickstarter if you want it to be a success or not. So that's worked well. How much the Kickstarter I have will eventually make, I have no idea. I'm already just delighted that it made the funding. One thing that I'm in the position of now is the, the traditional thing is that after you've got funding, if you have time left, then you create stretch goals to try and encourage more funding to occur. And uh, I have notes on that, so I'm going to be rolling some of that out soon, but um, when I did my report, I was not focusing at all on stretch goals, so <laughs> this is going to be me more or less firing from the hip in terms of how to manage the stretch goal campaigns, And uh, but that's okay. I don't, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to have tons and tons of more money flowing in. That would help tremendously with the book because it would allow for more artwork to be put in it would, yeah. I mean, money would just help in, in all sorts of ways to be able to kind of keep creating a better and better product for this. Um, but uh, I, you know, we'll have to just kind of see what happens. There's still a month left as as of now. Yeah, and but you hit your the goal that was going to make this book happen in 60 hours. Yeah, yeah. So it's encouraging. Um, and uh, hopefully, maybe, maybe there's a market for this book. Is what you're thinking? Just maybe. <laughs> just maybe. I mean, that was just. I, I. I mean, that was one of the things that was coming about when first kind of constructing this project is just that it is a subject matter in the kind of D and D Pathfinder zone of uh, games that doesn't receive a whole lot of attention and. Uh, and it kind of came about from me asking the questions of, well, well, what is it that I really would want to have addressed so that I could do this, I could run a, a, a campaign and know that all this stuff's already taken care of and mapped out so that I don't have to have debates with players about how this or that corner case works. Mm -hmm. um, or someone wants to have some kind of odd creature that they want to ride and wonder, well, you know, is that going to work with the level and party composition and all that kind of stuff. So having all that laid out ahead of time allow me to then kind of do the flying campaign that I've always wanted to do. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that in, in, in your introductory video on the Kickstarter page is how if everybody dreams of flying and we play these games that are essentially daydreams why don't the two ever cross over yeah yeah i mean that's i mean it, it isn't just flying but flying i think is one of the ones that really gets highlighted is what, one of the things i find really fascinating with the kind of D, D pathfinder world of gaming is that we're we're playing a game of pretend but it's fascinating how much how conservative players and game masters can be in what is possible in a game of pretend, mm -hmm. um, that there's this, there's always this kind of pressure coming down of no, you can't do that, and no, you can't do this. And uh, every once in a while, uh, I it just bubbles up. I'm just like, wait a second. I mean, we're all just kind of 
we're all sitting here playing pretend. So, you know, there's nothing stopping us. Hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't this be cool? Uh, it would be cool, but the rules don't allow that. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, they, they could. This is this is an open yeah, game. Another, <laughs> yeah. So so that this is a this entire Kickstarter in a certain way is a, a kind of protest I have <laughs> to my my thirty years of gaming. But you're, you're you're building something with it, not just making a stink, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what were your expectations going into this campaign for what would happen and when? Uh, so I, I went into it pretty confident that it would reach the funding goal because I, I, going from the crowdfunding report, I really designed it to do that. And so, um, so I, I kind of created the reward level system and I also made sure that I had a very modest funding level, which the, the crowdfunding report just screamed at, that you just have to have a modest fund funding level and that most of the Kickstarters that failed, it just really came down to just asking for way too much money. So in terms of it succeeding, I was like, this has to succeed. If it doesn't, then I don't really know what the data was really telling me. Mm -hmm. But when it would succeed, I don't know, because I, I think one element that makes this project something that won't just be this runaway hit that just kind of just keeps going and going and going is the fact that it is just a supplement that's plugging into an existing system. And I think that from my observations, the things that really have these really strong, powerful uh, kind of financial, you know, elevation in, in Kickstarter are things that are more of a, a core, new core role-playing game about something that hasn't actually been kind of teased out yet with mm -hmm. its own rule set. Right. I could imagine that if I had made a game that was not actually related to Pathfinder at all, but was just about the, you know, a whole bunch of people flying around on on dragons and griffins and creating a whole kind of campaign setting built off of that idea, it might actually end up being more successful than what I'm doing. But the thing is that I'm not too concerned about it having this kind of runaway success. This This Kickstarter for me is really supposed to be kind of an, an introduction to the marketplace to kind of say, I can do this. Yes. I can put out a quality product. And later on, I can put out Kickstarters that will be more ambitious and have a, a much bigger idea um, that, you know, people can kind of imagine kind of going off in a completely different direction that maybe even, you know, Pathfinder's system doesn't necessarily you know, move you towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a might be another attribute of the the wildly successful RPG Kickstarters is they are often attached to people who have long standing records of publishing really good material. 
Yeah, that that's that that is one of the things that the crowdfunding report was really also hammering home is that if you're known and you're a known quantity, then that can easily translate into thousands of more dollars that actually end up um, being collected in the Kickstarter. Um, and so that is another thing. It's just to kind of create a known quantity for for a geek industrial complex so that in in later times they go, oh yeah, I I, I remember that and that he that was a you know cool supplement and stuff and and uh this guy is legit. He's not just kind of firing stuff off and um and so you know that can kind of give the leverage to kind of create more ambitious projects. Yeah, this is sort of the first piton in your ascent of the mountain. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I I've been only slightly cyber stalking the Kickstarter, and uh, I noticed on the the Paizo forums, uh, some other third party publishers were sort of, or at least one person was advancing the viewpoint that it's better to pu conventionally publish and then launch into a Kickstarter. Uh, what were your reasons for starting with the Kickstarter? I think that prior to the Kickstarter, my original intention was to kind of create some really small projects and then just put them on to drive through RPG mm -hmm. and just kind of have them on the uh, the market to just kind of percolate and then move on to a Kickstarter. Why I ended up moving to a Kickstarter really ends up coming down to my own particular life situation being an educator. What I have as a situation is uh, I have essentially summers off. Mm -hmm. And so the summer is really the time to be able to kind of work on something outside of school. School is just completely and totally engrossing and um, you just really don't have the time to be kind of doing a lot of part-time work, or at least not at my current point in my, my career. Maybe Maybe once I'm a veteran teacher, then I'll be able to kind of juggle things better. But for right now, it really just comes down to a timing issue. And so what Kickstarter allows is for there to be a very nice, tight range of time where you can kind of get funding and get the work done and have it delivered all within a, a scope of time that you can kind of define and kind of build your life around. Mm -hmm. And so... So that's that's it ultimately for me. It just kind of works with my schedule versus kind of trickling out things. Um, I mean, the other big thing is that creating a Kickstarter creates a lot of urgency. So, you know, if I want to get people to play test, then I can say, I've got this schedule. I've got this much time. I need help. And when you when you kind of put it into that kind of framework, people are that much more eager to kind of step up and and jump in versus well at some point over the next year we'll kind of get together and yep. it's just it's harder to kind of get that kind of social organization going without that kind of uh, deadline. Mm -hmm. And on the other end of the process, it means you don't necessarily have a deadline, but you certainly have the expectation of delivery from all your backers. Yes, yes. I mean that yeah, I mean it it makes it so that the fire 
is underneath me and I can move along and just keep focusing on I've got a job to do and get it done. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it, it all, it, it works. It's a very suitable system for, for my life. So Companions of the Firmament still has more than a month to go on its fundraising. I know you're still working on the uh, the stretch goals, but are there anything that we can specifically that we can look forward to along the way? Well, first, philosophically, one thing that I want to make sure happens with the stretch goals is I want to make sure that there's um, things put in there that are going to add value regardless of the funding level that you're at. I can totally understand why you would have you know, on the business end that there would be most of the things you would be focusing on is creating incentives to increase your funding level or fund at a higher tier. Um, and, you know, that all makes sense business-wise, but I don't know. I, I just kind of like the idea that if it just kind of gets to a certain level, everybody gets something. Right. Um, so that it isn't kind of a, a rich get richer type of situation. So, in that regard, two things that I want to be doing, um, one of them is to create more creature sheets. So a creature sheet on the Kickstarter campaign is basically a sheet that gives you a whole bunch of um, creatures that you can kind of print out and you can mount them on card or wood or whatever. You just have it as paper. And it, it's just uh, for grid-based combat you can just kind of, if you want to be mounted, you just put that down. It's just a flat token, and then you just put your figure on it. And that's something that I've been doing for years on end. I just find that infinitely easier than having uh, a complicated, you know, physical 3D mounted figure. It, it looks cool, but it just ends up being really impractical for the kind of gameplay that Pathfinder offers. Right. I want to be able to put some more uh, creature sheets out so that it just kind of gives you even more options to be able to just kind of print something out. And I, what I'm doing with the creature sheets is that they're black and white in color. If you want to uh, pull out some uh, colored pencils, markers, or even crayons, and you want to have your griffin look just so, well, you can color it in yourself and customize it just as you want. Or if you just want to bust something out, you can just print out the color version. So so there's, so the creature sheets is something that I'm pretty confident that I'll be able to kind of have roll out depending on how many how much money kind of comes in. Mm -hmm. Another feature that I didn't really go into before, but is having one thing to make the flying system that I've been putting together work uh, is to have uh, infographics ready to go on a sheet that you would be using so that it just makes it crystal clear exactly how that particular creature performs in the air. Mm -hmm. And so you have, you have these little charts that show the different um, directions that you can go in, and it tells exactly what, if you move your, your figure in that square from where it currently is, then it's going to cost this much resource or require this fly check or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you don't ever have to look anything up. It's all right in front of you. 
And so you can have your player character sheet out in front of you. You can have your mount sheet out in front of you. And you just go ahead and just play the, the, the combat out and uh, you don't have to bother looking anything up. One of the stretch goals that I'm imagining is that the more money that comes in really means the more monsters can actually kind of be put into this layout. Mm -hmm. And I went through the database and there are like, I forget the exact what it is, but it's like 350 or 400 monsters that can fly. <laughs> and so that's a lot of work. Yes. And it's really just an issue of, you know, every X amount of money would allow X amount more of those monsters to get be put into that format. And so that's going to, that would be something that would be created as a, a separate PDF that, and I, I'd want to have it as a PDF specifically because it's designed to be something that you print out and yes. then use in front of you. Yep. So that would be something that would also be available to everybody. Um, and then after that, um, there's other things, but yeah, I'm, it's it's too early to to go into details because I'm not quite sure if I'm actually going to do them or not. Right. So if people want to find you on the web, read more about Companions of the Firmament, read uh, what you have on Geek Industrial Complex, where should they go? The the home page for Geek Industrial Complex is probably where most of the updates. But also, I'm I'm also updating Facebook if you want to friend that, um, that's probably one of the easiest things that I can do to fire off an update and kind of broadcast out. I'm also on Twitter, and uh, I have a presence on Google+. And then, of course, and then of course, there's just the campaign website itself. And uh, we'll definitely be linking to that directly in the show notes because Kickstarter URLs are not at all convenient to share verbally. But uh, definitely geekindustrialcomplex.com is a place to go, and you've got links there to the Kickstarter page as well. Yeah. Neil, thank you very much for coming on CarnageCast. Uh, I wish you still more luck with Commanders of the Firmament since you've had s such good luck so far. Well, thank you. This has been a real pleasure.